great to see everyone. I'm still, uh, still celebrating Easter. We had a great Sunday and, and the whole weekend last week. We actually had over 3,000 people in, in attendance physically over our campuses. That's great. Another 1,000 or so people were tuning in online. And then we also uh, had 74 people who indicated to us that they were making a, a first-time decision to follow Christ, and another 32 people who said they were considering it. So God really blessed, and we're, we're excited about what, what God is doing it through grace in all of our campuses, and thank you for being a part of that and, uh, and making that happen with us. We, we've been in a series called The Greatest Week in History, and today we're going to sort of cap that off and of course, all that started with Jesus' uh, ride into Jerusalem, and then that led to his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. The, the thing about it is, uh, when we talk about the death of Jesus, I mean, the day after his death, we talked about this last time, that it looked like whatever small mark that Jesus had left on the world, that it would rapidly disappear. But instead, his impact, Christ's impact on world history has been unparalleled, unparalleled. Nothing ever like it has ever happened. Usually, of course, when leaders die, their influence immediately recedes. But uh, Jesus' impact was greater a hundred years after he died than it was during his life. A thousand years after Christ died... It was his movement that laid the foundation of Europe 2,000 years after Christ died. Today, there are more people in more places worshiping Christ than ever before. His movement continues to grow. He never led an army. He never held office. He said his kingdom was not of this world. He was on the wrong side of Roman law when he was born. He was on the wrong side of Roman law when he died. Yet, his movement would eventually end emperor worship and begin a tradition of limited government. His movement would undermine the power of the state rather than reinforce it like other religions did, which is interesting to me because there's a myth in our culture today that Christianity spread because governments and people used Christianity to control the masses, right, to control people. But really, the history is just the opposite of that. To become a Christian was to be, a, it was against the law. To become a Christian was to be persecuted by the state, persecuted by governments. That's the first several hundred years of Christianity as it spread all around the world. Because of Christ's movement, because of Jesus' life, language like we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Language like that entered human history because of Christ. Humility, which was scorned by the ancient world, became championed as a virtue. Forgiveness, which used to be a sign of weakness, became an act of moral beauty. 
All because of Christ. So why did? You know, we want the rest of the story after the resurrection is that Christianity powerfully sweeps across the world. And the question is, why did that happen? How did it happen? What caused that to happen? Well, I want to look as we continue in the rest of the story of the greatest week in history, that it all started with the appearances of Jesus. Jesus' appearances after the resurrection, just touched on it briefly last week, all four Gospels tell us that women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And, And the reason that's significant is that in Greek culture, in Roman culture, in Jewish culture, the dominant, all three dominant cultures of the time, women were not considered as credible witnesses. Yet all four gospel writers mention this. And and by the way, if the resurrection was fabricated, they would never say that. They would never have the first witnesses be women for that reason. As a matter of fact, the fact that it did happen there would be a strong temptation for gospel writers to just leave that part out. I mean, why include that? Because that's the way it happened. That's exactly the way it happened. Then Jesus appeared to Peter, and then the 10 remaining disciples, and then Thomas was included in another meeting, the 11 disciples, and then two men on a walk to Emmaus. He appears to them. Eyewitnesses record that hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul tells us 500 at one time saw Jesus. And he was writing that 15 years after it happened. When he was pinning that, people were still alive. People could check. People knew people who who were there. People saw the resurrection and people said they saw the resurrection, even though saying it brought arrest and beatings. Sometimes they had to watch their kids being beaten. And if you remember last time, Jesus on a couple of different occasions said, hey, disciples, even though he had met with them, he said, meet me in Galilee. And so even though the disciples had already seen Jesus, they go, uh, leave Jerusalem area, go up to Galilee, and they get there, and they're waiting for Jesus. Remember Peter. He's seen Jesus since the resurrection, but he's not really had an in-depth conversation with Jesus since the night Jesus was betrayed, and then that same night when Peter denied Christ, remember, three times. It's not like it was just a slip or an accident. He denied knowing Christ because he was confronted by a teenage girl. And now he's waiting for Christ and that's eating at him. He knows he's failed. I mean, he's blown it. He gets the resurrection, but what use could he be? He was the first guy to cave under pressure, and his failures eating at him. And so here's what Scripture says. While they're waiting, he decides, hey, he's going to go back to something that he knows. John 21, verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, they said to him, we'll also come with you. And they went out 
and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they answered, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So, so this kind of breaks out. And there's something that you need to know, and some of you are already catching this, is that this all happened before, right? Three years before this, before Peter was a disciple, he was fishing with his partners. And they had fished all night. They brought their boats in, and they're cleaning their nets. At the same time, there's this new rabbi on the scene, and he's teaching in that area. And people are just flocking in. And the crowd gets a little overwhelming, and Jesus then goes to Peter's boat, and he says, hey, let me get in your boat and push out a little bit so I can teach these people without being trampled. And so Peter does it, remember? Three years before Peter really knows that much about Jesus. When Jesus finishes his teaching on the boat just a little ways from shore, then Jesus says, hey, let's, let's go out and cast the nets. And Peter's like, oh boy, I've been up all night. I haven't caught anything. Fishing all night, got nothing. We just got our nets cleaned. And now you've used my boat as a speaking podium. And now you, a carpenter turned new rabbi, you're telling me to go fishing again. Great. Sure, okay. So he does it, right? He throws in the nets, and what happens? Too many fish can't handle it. He calls for his partner, John. They, James, they jump in the other boat. They paddle out. They get both Boats hauling in the fish. All of a sudden, the boats begin to sink. They can't get them back. And do you remember Peter's response? He falls down on his face in the boat before Jesus and says, go away from me, for I'm a sinful man. Peter gets it. This isn't normal. Jesus isn't a normal person. And then remember what Jesus says? Hey, don't fear Come with me, we'll fish for people. You know, that was it. And so now, after the resurrection, as they waited in Galilee, as the stranger that they can't recognize is calling from the shore, Peter and John immediately, when they throw their nets in and the fish are just swarming, they're like, whoa, that's Jesus. Peter launches himself into the water. He doesn't even wait to paddle the boat in throws himself into the water, swims to the shore. Remember how that went and Jesus had a little fire there. The other disciples, you know, they come in with the boat and the fish and John's careful to tell us, oh, there were 153 of those. What's significant about 153? Nothing. John's a fisherman. You know, hey, there were 153. Nobody else cared. They ate that fish. And remember, they have a conversation. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Kind of a 
odd question. And Peter, he asks it repeatedly, and Peter keeps saying yes. And, and then Jesus says, well, do my work. Feed my sheep. Later, they go up to a nearby uh, mountain, large hill, and they get the great commission. And, uh, and then it's not only Jesus' appearances after his resurrection that caused the church to grow, but it's also Jesus' instructions before his ascension. They go, they, they get this great commission, and, and basically that just boils down to give others the message, see other people come, become Christians, which is make disciples, make disciples. And, and that's not what the disciples were thinking. You see, they knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that Jesus was the true king of Israel. And, he, and they were Jesus' closest followers. So they kind of expected, that's, this is why the crucifixion threw them off so bad. Even though Jesus was saying it, they sort of expected when Jesus came to town that he would declare himself king, that all that would happen, and guess who they would be? They would be the king's closest advisors, right? They would sort of assist Jesus in ruling the kingdom. But that's not what Jesus says. And now that it, he's resurrected, they're thinking that's even more true. And so they're saying, is now the time? And Jesus says, not, not for you to know the time. Make disciples. Keep following me. And then Jesus tells Peter, as Peter's trying to figure out, how's this all going to play out? Jesus just, just gives it to Peter straight. Hey, you're going to die. You're going to be killed. And Peter's like going, oh, not what I was thinking. That, that really went south. And then Peter points out his business partner, John, a, a younger guy, and says, what about him? And Jesus says, none of your business. What's that to you? You just need to focus on following me. It's like, Jesus says, hey, you're going to be killed. You need to follow me and make disciples. But it's so easy to get distracted. I mean, the first thing Peter does, does is say, he doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to gear myself up. I'm going to buckle up. I'm going to make this happen. First thing he says, well, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? Jesus says, don't worry about what's going to happen to him. You do you. Follow me. Make disciples. And then later, the disciples are grasping the implications of Jesus' teaching. They're trying to get all this in, wrap their minds around it. They totally missed on the crucifixion. Now they're trying to figure this out. What does all this mean? And 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus leaves. He, he then, 40 days after the resurrection, he meets them again near Jerusalem in the town of Bethany. That was sort of Jesus' headquarters that last week in history, kept leaving and coming back from Bethany, which is right on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, real sh short distance. And Jesus meets with them there and basically tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Here's how it's recorded for us by Luke in Acts 1-3. To these also... 
To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. He said, wait, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, wait, the Father's, I've been telling you, the Father's promised something, you hang out in Jerusalem until this time. He continues in verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So that we call that the ascension of Jesus. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus gives them some more final instructions, and then they watch him ascend up into heaven until they can't see him anymore because of the clouds. And Jesus was gone, but Jesus' followers carried out his mission. So the disciples wait. They wait for this. They wait 10 days after his ascension, so a little over a week, and now it's Pentecost. Pentecost just means 50th, and Pentecost is the 50th day since the Passover celebration. And so as people are in Jerusalem again celebrating Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up. And then they start preaching publicly with boldness, and Peter's very first sermon is all about the resurrection. And people believed and started responding. And which, which is kind of crazy because just a little over a month before this, Peter had denied Christ, confronted by a girl, and then a month, you know, 40, 50 days later, all of a sudden, he's, he's confronting the whole city that they've crucified their Messiah, their king, who they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. He confronts the highest court in the land. He's confronting everybody. He's completely changed. And, and we see it show up in history. For example, the Jewish people had, had observed the Sabbath, Saturday as the Sabbath, for 1,500 years. But for the first time in history, tens of thousands of Jewish people start worshiping on Sunday rather than Saturday, the day of the resurrection. Why did that happen? Because of the resurrection. That's significant. That's something historians are going like, yeah, we, we can't really explain that. That would be like Kevin Pinkerton flying to Jerusalem and talking to a bunch of Hasidic Jews, and then all of a sudden, after I meet with them, you know, tens of thousands of them change from worshiping on Saturday to Sunday. That, that just wouldn't happen any other way. At the same time, tens of thousands of Orthodox Jews changed their understanding of the nature of God. I mean, the Jewish people were rabid monotheists. 
They recited the Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. One God. And then suddenly, around 30 AD, tens of thousands of Jewish people changed their understanding of the very nature of God, that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why'd that happen? Because of the resurrection. That's why that happened. And his followers carried his mission. And not only that, Jesus' followers died well. Why did Christianity spread? Because of Jesus' appearances, because of his instructions, because his followers carried on the mission, and because his followers died well. And it starts early. Persecution starts. I mean, already they've killed Jesus, and then they start pressuring the disciples to not talk. The disciples proclaimed Jesus. They, they prayed for boldness because they knew they were doing this in the face of the authorities. As a matter of fact, Acts 4.18 says, and after they were arrested, and when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. A short time later, they're arrested again. Acts 5 uh, in, in verse 40 says, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. That, that's they beat them brutally and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, then released them. And so they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple from house, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Do you get what's happening? The tension is building. They keep preaching. The authorities keep hauling them in, arresting them, beating them, telling them to stop. They leave rejoicing that they could be beaten for Christ. And they're praying, and they're, they keep preaching. They keep teaching. Finally, a man named Stephen, who was chosen as the church start, had been growing at this point by thousands and thousands of people. They're starting to take care of their own. In a culture where a lot of people didn't have enough to eat, all of a sudden the church is taking care of their own people and they appoint a few guys to help with us. One of them is Stephen. So he's to help feed the poor people in the church that don't have food. But he's also a bold preacher. In the city, he breaks out into a sermon, gathers some people around. All of a sudden that offends a bunch of people, and he basically preaches that you crucified the Christ. And then they haul him in and say, hey, we've heard it said that you're saying that you don't need a temple and you don't need the law and the sacrifice. What's going on with that? And he basically preaches one of the longest sermons recorded in Scripture and says, yeah, we've got Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, and when, they, when he says that, they force him out of the city. They stone him with rocks. And as he's dying, he's praying 
that God would forgive them of their sins. And then Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. What happens there? All of a sudden, all these thousands of new believers in the city of Jerusalem, because of the persecution, they start leaving Jerusalem, which is what Jesus wanted them to do in the beginning. Remember, you're going to be preaching in Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. where it's this, it's this persecution that breaks out that sort of gets them to do that. And the message starts spreading. And when it did spread unwashed, unclean Gentiles embraced the message with such zeal that the message flew across the Mediterranean Sea to North Africa, Alexandria, Rome. It's spreading in all directions, up into Europe, spreading to Asia, down into Africa. It's going everywhere. And, and so we have the spread of Christianity. And by the way, it didn't happen by warfare. Another myth. You know, that's Islam in the 7th century spread by force. Become Muslim or die. It didn't spread by birth rate like Hinduism. Christianity spread through conversion. But to convert to Christianity at this time was to risk your life in persecution. And it spread anyway. Why did Christians die so well? It seemed like a no-win to convert to Christianity. But Christianity spread throughout the world like an explosion went off. In the year 30 AD. And why? You didn't earn heaven by telling the message. You, you, there was no financial reward in that. You didn't become famous for doing that. You, you didn't really expect anything on this earth except for death. And when Christianity spread to Rome, there was the Colosseum. Nero entertains the crowds in the Colosseum, first with animal fights, animals killing animals. And then they started using people against animals, and then animals killing people. And then they ran out of people who were willing to do that. Then they emptied the prisons, and they had all the criminals they were all killed by animals. And then when they ran out of criminals, they started ran, rounding up all the Christians. And Christians go, and of course they all had an option, just recant your Christianity and you go off. Just worship the emperor and you're good. But they didn't. Thousands of Christians died in the Colosseum because they would not renounce their faith in Rome, they piled up bodies of dead Christians that were just, in their carcasses, were eaten by dogs. Stray dogs in the city. They were being slaughtered, and it seemed like every time they killed a Christian, three more people would become a Christian. 
where one early Christian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How Christianity spread when people were killed for believing in Christ? Well, I'll tell you why. Because then followers of Christ did not believe in a false God that doesn't allow suffering. They didn't believe that. Today, people reject God because of suffering. People reject God. Well, how, how can a good God allow evil and suffering in the world? But for God to get rid of evil and suffering, guess what? All of us have to go because he's given us free choice and we've all misused it. Today, people want, want a Jesus that will make them rich or get rid of their cancer. But when, you're, when people are thinking that way, they're elevating the gift over the giver. And that's actually idolatry. That people, they don't really want Jesus. They want Jesus to get something else. First century believers did not doubt God because of suffering. Their faith wasn't connected to an imaginary God many Americans believe in, an imaginary God who doesn't allow pain, doesn't allow suffering. Think about the disciples. They saw the worst thing that they could think of, torturous death through crucifixion, happen to the best person they ever knew who they later realized was the actual Son of God, creator of the world, who died for them. They saw the worst thing happen to the best person they knew, which, by the way, brought about the very best result for all of us. We know God is for us, all of us, all people. God is for all people. We know that because he allowed his one and only son to die on the cross on our behalf so that we would have a way to be forgiven. We don't know God's... It's not, oh, God's for us because he doesn't allow bad things to happen to us. No, God is for us because Christ died for us. Sharing in suffering is, is not evidence that God's absence, absent, that he's not there. People who experience great suffering maintained their faith because the foundation of their faith was not a comfortable life. The foundation of their faith was a resurrected Christ. And that makes all the difference. All the disciples and others were martyred. All the disciples were martyred, and a bunch of other people, with the exception of John, who was actually sentenced to death, that was sort of botched when he was being put to death, and then they just sent him to a slave camp island, Patmos, to spend the rest of his life. 
But all the disciples were killed. James beheaded. Thomas speared through in India. Simon, not, the, not Peter, but the other Simon, crucified. Mark, burnt alive. Bartholomew, killed in Asia. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece, but because it was a different kind of a cross, he preached for two days while he died. Matthew was killed in Ethiopia. Philip crucified, some people say, with his daughters. James thrown off the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, when he refused to recant. This is the half-brother of Jesus, not the apostle James. He's thrown off the highest part of the temple when he refused to recant that his half-brother Jesus was indeed the Son of God. When they throw him off, he survives this 100-plus foot fall, and then they beat him to death. All these people had a chance not to be killed, but they took death. Peter, crucified upside down. Paul, tortured and beheaded in Rome. Christians were beheaded. They were nailed to posts. They were burned at the stake, strangled. They were stretched apart, sawn in two, skinned alive. 2,000 in the Colosseum just with lions, piles of dead Christians eaten by dogs. All this because they would not say that Christianity was a lie. They wouldn't say it. They were willing to give their lives. Why? So we could know the truth. All these early Christians not only died because of what they believed, they died because of what they said they saw, the resurrected Christ, most of them at the beginning. That's what they were saying. And they wouldn't take it back. And we know religious zealots will be willing to die for what they think is true. That happens all over the world. But nobody dies for something that they know is not true. If the resurrection didn't happen, they would not be willing to die in mass. All of them. All of them willing to die. You, you don't willingly die for what you know is a lie. Nobody does that. They're saying, hey, even if you kill me, it's the truth. And then the gospel message trickles down to us. And now it's our generation. And by the way, during this time, Christians are still being persecuted all over the world. As a matter of fact, Easter, and especially the weeks leading up to Easter, is one of the most dangerous times for Christians in places like Iraq and Turkey and China because they're identified as Christians, because they want to meet together in Egypt. And so, although it hasn't been as bad as most years, read the news. You have to dig a little deeper because our news media doesn't really report it. But Christians died leading up to Easter. Churches were bombed leading up to Easter. And we cannot expect that that's not coming here. 
we can see how it can happen. And we probably should expect it to happen. But the question is, how will we respond? The baton has been given to us of the gospel. What will we do with that? Because it's so easy to get distracted. And we have our jobs. We have good things like like our family, a way to make money, houses to live in, bills to pay, sports events to go to. And we got stuff. We've got entertainment. We've got TV. We've got a thousand channels. And you still can't watch anything. You know, it's it's all over the place. But we try for hours. What are you doing to spread the message to the next generation? We live in America where we, so far, still have freedom to worship who we want, when we want. It won't always be that way. What are you doing? What are you living for? How are you contributing to make sure that that we pass the gospel on to the next generation? Because the great commission that Jesus gave to the disciples, that's our commission. That's our job. Make disciples. Help people convert to Christ and grow in their relationship with him. That's what we are all about here at Grace. And those of you that are part of it, that's our mission. And we need to pray that God would make us bold to stand up, to carry his message of love to every person in the world. Let's stand together. Father God in heaven, we we thank you for your love for us. God, that, that you have died for us through your son, that you You have allowed him to prove who he was through the resurrection. Lord, you have passed your teaching down to us. The way that we can be forgiven, the way that we can have true life, the way that we can understand life and everything and have meaning and purpose in in how we live. God, help us to be bold. Help us to be willing to sacrifice. Help us to make a difference, Lord, for your honor for your glory, for your kingdom, for your message to be spread. Help us to figure that out for our lives today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.